We are celebrating the greatest moment in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the time of Jesus' birth to present day, there has been a response to Jesus' presence. What has your response been, and what will your response be today? Take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. If your life was a marketing campaign, what, what would people see as the advertisement? If they looked at your life, would they see an advertisement for joy, for hope, for peace, for love? Or if they looked at your life, would they see an advertisement for despair, for unrest, for jealousy, for anger, for bitterness? You know, the thing is, our life is expressing something. You know, the question that we have to ask ourselves every day is, what is our life expressing? What is that showing? Obviously, today is Easter, and uh, we're excited to be celebrating uh, this event that took place. And it, it, you know, I don't know, you know, for you, if this is something you do every weekend. I know many of us we we're in church uh, most every weekend, and we're celebrating Jesus Christ and what He's done in our life. Maybe you're here today because someone invited you. Maybe uh, maybe you're with family and, and you're here with them. But we're just we're glad that you're here. But we want you to know that what we celebrate today is more than just a holiday that's on a calendar. It's an event that took place. You know, the last holiday that our faith celebrated was is what we call Christmas. Everybody loves Christmas for a lot of different reasons. But Christmas was just the beginning of what God was, was going to do to change everything. And Easter is what our faith hinges to. It's what validif- validates our faith and what we believe. So, you know, when these events, and it's very important, I keep saying that it's very important that you understand that these events, when they took place uh, originally, they weren't called Christmas and in Easter, right? It, It was when it started, it was just the birth of a baby. It was a birth of a baby that became very famous, very quick. People began to respond as they heard about this birth Many traveled a lot of miles to come and see this baby that had been born. This baby would grow up and as a child and become an adult would begin to, 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 to speak and do things like no other around him. His brilliance was like no other. The way he loved other people was mesmerizing. In fact, the way he loved other people was hard for many to understand. This, this baby who grew up, who was called Jesus, he, he, was, he would proclaim that he was the son of God. He would tell people who were Jewish, who were a part of the Israel community, who, who followed Yahweh, who followed God. He would tell them, if you want to see the father, you see the father when you see me. This was hard for many of them to understand. In fact, it was very hard for those who were religious leaders who taught about Yahweh, who taught about God to, to understand and see what he was talking and they didn't want to accept what he was saying. So they led a revolt against this man who claimed to be the God that they taught about. What's even more interesting is the death that was supposed to end the movement that he was starting only spearheaded it because the death gave Jesus an opportunity to resurrect And we believe this because people saw Jesus. They they witnessed not just the birth of Jesus. They witnessed not just the life of Jesus. 
They witness not just his crucifixion and his death on the cross, but they witnessed a resurrected living Jesus after he was mutilated, tortured, and killed through a form of a death penalty called crucifixion. It's four of the most popular accounts that you have probably heard of that you know about that talks about the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection are written documents and accounts that come from guys named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew's account, what he wrote, it began to circulate. His writing began to circulate about uh, 30 to 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mark's writing began to circulate about 25 to 35 years after his death and resurrection. Luke, who wrote his account, his started circulating about 30 years after his death and resurrection. And Luke didn't stop there because Luke investigated a lot. And he actually followed the early church and what they did, those who were the apostles. He followed what they did in the birth of the church. And he wrote a book that we know of called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. That writing began to circulate about 33 to 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then John's account was about 55 to 60 years after his death and resurrection. Then there were all these letters from these church leaders who began to circulate, two of which are pretty interesting. One of them started circulating about 19 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The other about uh, 30 35 years after his death, resurrection. They were written by two guys. These letters were written to believers, circulated around the churches. Their names were James and Jude. Now, what's neat about these guys is they were the earthly brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus. Now, John, when he wrote his account of the history of Jesus, we read in John chapter 7, verse 5, he tells us that even Jesus' brothers did not believe he was who he proclaimed to be. But something changed and something happened. What happened was they saw a risen Jesus after his death on the cross. I've heard the question posed before and I'll ask it to you. What would it take to cause you to believe that your brother was the son of God? (laughs) Maybe his prediction of his death and resurrection and then actually pulling it off is enough to cause you to believe, hey, maybe he is who he said he was. And James became a leader in the early church. And he became a vocal leader. History tells us of a time when Rome was nearly burned to the ground. It happened in 64 AD. This was a a time in many, uh, when many of these letters that I just mentioned, this is when they were just beginning to circulate and going from place to place to tell of the story of Jesus and what he had done. But Rome burns down and many still don't know exactly what happened. But Nero, who was the leader of Rome at that time, he blamed the Christians, the followers of Christ, because they were easy to blame because they were still running around proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Well, if I just blame them, then that's going to make everyone else even more mad at them. But the Christians said, we didn't start the fire the fire was burning when that's a lame joke from the eighties. I'm sorry. They didn't, they didn't do it. So these guys, these are eyewitnesses proclaiming the resurrection 
of Jesus. And the story that they tell about the life of Jesus' death and his resurrection, it's a captivating story. For centuries, the Israelites had been waiting for what had been called a Messiah to come and to rescue them to redeem them, to save them. The Messiah was the one who was spoken of in the Old Testament. It was the one who would rescue Israel is that Jesus was that anointed one. See, the New Testament is translated primarily from the Greek language. The Old Testament is translated primarily from the Hebrew language. So that's why when you read in some of the letters uh, that we see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they talk about one of the disciples going back to his brother and saying, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. In other words, what we read about in, from the Hebrew language of Messiah, our Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, we found him. And as we see Jesus' life unfold and we see his death and resurrection, we begin to realize as we look back that over 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. You know, these guys were writing and proclaiming these things. And I wonder if they really knew the fullness of what they were talking about and what they were prophesying about. Uh, David would write a psalm that we have in the book of Psalms. It's, it's, it's Psalm 22. And David would begin this writing and he would say these words because he's weighted by what he's feeling under the, 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 those who were surrounding him. And he would say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus would quote those words on the cross. But what's interesting is later in this Psalm, in verses 16 to 18, he says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs and evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. There was no crucifixion at that time. It had not been invented. But David is poetically and prophetically writing this, trying to express how he feels, maybe not even realizing he's talking about what would happen to the Messiah. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. This is exactly what happened to Jesus while he was on the cross. They divide my garments among themselves. They throw dice for my clothes. All what happened to Jesus. All of these prophecies end up, there's so many more throughout the Old Testament that we see being fulfilled. In a book called Science Speaks, the authors begin to express how in regards to the likelihood of just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled. Just eight of them. And they write these words and they say, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They'll cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say, that's the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man from their day to the present time providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Well, the likelihood of it coming true happens because they didn't write under their own wisdom. They wrote under the inspiration and the wisdom of God, our creator, the heavenly father. See, we have this hindsight. We can look back and we can see these things. These people who were living this day, they didn't have that. They think what they take, what they think they know about the Messiah. They combine it with what they know of what was told to their father, Abraham. 
See, Abraham was told years and years before them. We see it in Genesis chapter 12, the very beginning of our Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that God is speaking to Abraham and he tells him, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And it seems like through the history of Israel, I don't know, it almost seems like that they only hold on to this part of what God told Abraham. That he would make them great and he would bless them that they would be famous. And they kind of forget this next part because the next part says, and you will be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who treat you with contempt. All, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Because see, the thing about nations, when, when a nation gets strong, what a nation does is it conquers, it subdues, it enslaves And this is what's happened to Israel over and over again. And so the thing is, though, God told them they would be different. And the same is true of the Messiah. The Messiah would be different than what they can think and what they can imagine. That's why it was hard for many to see that this is the Messiah. But once they realized it, and once they realized it definitely through his death and his resurrection, Peter would begin to speak to the Jewish listeners. We see it from Luke's words in Acts chapter three. And he begins to tell them, begins to show them, you are the children of those prophets. You're included in the covenant that God promised to your ancestors. God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. This has been fulfilled through Jesus is what Peter's saying to them. But not just to you, the Jewish nation, nation, this is happening to every nation around. Those who were not included. It's happening to those who were called Gentiles. And Paul, who would speak about Jesus, would write a letter to the church of Galatians, Galatians uh, chapter 3. And he would tell them this. He says, what's more, the scriptures look to, uh, forward to this time when God would declare to the Gentiles or declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham a long time ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all of you who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of your faith. In other words, you don't have to be a child of Abraham or be Jewish to be blessed by God. You're blessed because of your faith and because of what happened through the life of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, he finally comes to this earth and it all starts when a man named John the baptizer, as we know him, begins to prepare the way for Jesus. Matthew and Luke, they tell us about John the Baptist. And I love Luke's writing and and how he makes sure to let us know that he's not spreading rumors. Look at what he says in Luke chapter one. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So he's making sure that you understand that these writings that are starting to circulate, they're from eyewitnesses. They're not just made up stories. And then he goes on and he says, so having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, in other words, I don't want to just make something up. I don't want to just spread rumors. I want to tell you something that's real and something that's true. He says, so I've decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. 
And so when he starts writing about John the Baptist, he starts, and we see it in Luke chapter three, he writes these words. He says, it's now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Aturia and Traconitus Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. He's going to a lot of effort to put some great detail about the surroundings of when John the Baptist was around. And then he says, Annas and Caiaphas, they were the high priests at the time. And at this time, a message from God came to John, who was the son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. And so all of a sudden crowds start to come and start to hear the teachings of John the one who is baptizing people. And John is teaching them and he's saying, you must repent. You must seek God for the forgiveness of your sins. And you have to understand, this challenges everything in their culture because repentance and forgiveness took place when the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice and go in for the atonement of the sins of the people. This was very different than what they understood. But a note for us to understand today, if what we establish in our life causes more dependence on ourselves than it does on God, God might just disrupt that in our life. But see, when the crowds began to come and they began to listen, Matthew tells us that in those crowds were Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the ones who were teaching These were the teachers of the law. These were the ones who taught about Yahweh. They were the ones who should be respected and honored. And they walk up and John looks at them and says, ah, you brood of vipers. It's funny that Jesus himself would call them the exact same thing. And John looks at him and he tells him, he said, now don't just assume because you're children of Abraham. Remember what we talked about from Genesis? Don't just assume that because you're children of Abraham, that you're just automatically blessed, that you're automatically saved because God can raise up children from these rocks and these stones that are around us. I almost wonder when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's a day that We remembered last Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday. He's entering the city of Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches at him and they're celebrating and they're singing praises. The Pharisees don't like it. They come to Jesus and they say, you need to tell your disciples to stop doing that. In other words, this is blasphemous. They think this this shouldn't be taking place. And Jesus looks at them and says to them, listen, if they don't do it, these rocks will cry out. And I almost, I just wonder, did their minds go back to John when he said, you know, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wanted to. So the people are asking John, what do we need to do? What should our response be to this one coming that you're talking about? What should we do? And John looks at him and he basically tells them, you need to love others. He tells them, share with others who don't have anything. He tells them, don't mistreat people. Treat them fairly. 
In other words, what John tells them to do is he's saying to them, you need to love people in the way that Jesus, who is coming, is going to love you. And that's exactly what Jesus taught. But then the day came when Jesus comes walking up to where John is and John looks and says, behold, the Lamb of God, the one whose laces I'm unworthy of even tying on his sandals. And Jesus comes up and John baptizes Jesus. God speaks from the heavens over Jesus as, as the gospels tell us. And, and, they, and he says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And he begins to teach people in ways that was different. He challenged the worldview of the religious leaders. He changed the lives of thousands of people. He loved people who were called unlovable. He touched people and healed them. People who were called unclean and were told you can't even be in the city. He changed their life. He healed. He restored. He raised dead people to life. But he also taught a teaching that said, love your neighbor. Even love the ones that you call your enemy. Love them. And when he was asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? It's almost like Jesus said, the better question to ask is what should I do to bring heaven to earth now? What should I do to live out the kingdom of heaven on earth? Because Jesus knew I'm about to open up the door for eternal life by giving mine. The response that I want to see from you and from every follower who would become a follower of Christ would be this love others in the same way that I've loved you. That's what you need to give your life to as you follow me. And in fact, it would be exactly what Jesus taught his disciples on their very last night together. John writes these words down. John tells us about that night in John chapter 13 tells us that he took the form of a servant and he got down and he washed their feet This was difficult for them to receive from Jesus because he was supposed to be their leader. But Jesus looks at them after washing their feet and he put on his robe again and sat down and he asked them, he said, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and you call me Lord and rightfully so, because that's what I am. And since I, the one who is your Lord, who is your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done for you. In other words, the thing that you might consider a little beneath you, that's what I'm calling you to. And as that night begins to come to a close, he looks at them and he tells them, so I'm giving you a new commandment. You know all the other commandments. You've heard every commandment that was ever given all the way back to when Moses brought the law down from the mountain. You know those laws, you know those commandments. I'm giving you a new one tonight. Love each other. That's it, guys. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. This was the message of Jesus. This is what he taught. 
And he did it right up until the time when the religious leaders had had enough. And they plotted to take him from life to death, or so they thought. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the chief priest, the high priest at the time, a guy named Caiaphas, who was afraid to see Jesus for who he was because he didn't want to let go of his power. He didn't want to let go of his control. He was afraid of everything he was going to lose if he embraced embraced Jesus as the Messiah. He led this revolt to have him arrested and killed. And he got a help from an unhappy follower of Jesus by the name of Judas. Judas, who was seeing that the road he was hoping was going to go one way, wasn't going that way. He was hoping they were going to be a part of the leadership with Jesus overthrowing Rome. But Jesus is talking about dying. And so when, the, when things weren't going to end the way Judas was hoping they were in, when he, when he was disappointed in what Jesus was leading to, instead of trusting him, he betrayed him. And he turned him over to the Roman army. But we know, and as Jesus proclaimed over and over, he said, I don't, nobody takes my life from me. I give it away. So when he gave himself to the Roman authority, they took him back to the high priest and Annas and Caiaphas then turned him over to Pilate because Rome would have to be the one to crucify him. And Pilate met with him and Pilate couldn't really find anything in him to charge him as guilty to be crucified. And, but he told, tells the priests and he tells the people, he says, I tell you what, I'll give you one of these guys. I'll give you either Jesus or I'll give you this other criminal who was there waiting to be crucified by the name of Barabbas. And somehow or another, the priest convinced the crowds to begin to chant, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so that's exactly what the Roman government did. And then we begin to see so many other prophecies begin to be fulfilled. He's beaten with his cat of nine tails and whipped across his back and stripped to open up his skin. He's placed or he's given a cross to carry from one part of the town up a hill to be crucified. He's laid on that. His hands and his feet are pierced with nails. And we begin to understand what Isaiah was talking about. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was raised on this cross, struggling to breathe. A crown of thorns pressed on his head. A sign mockingly hung above him that said, the king of the Jews. Little did they realize. And while he's on that cross, he's surrounded by these two other guys. As we talked about them last week, there are these thieves on the cross and both of them responding to Jesus in the same way that everyone else has been responding to Jesus. One responding by ridiculing him and joining the crowd. The other responding and saying, we deserve what we get. You don't. He sees the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and he sees God for who he is. And he asks him, Will you remember me? Of all that I've done in my life, I don't deserve it. But will you remember me? And Jesus tells him today, you'll be with me in paradise. And he takes the weight of every sin, past, present, and future upon him. And he feels as if in the darkness that surrounded him, as as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us the skies grow dark. As he feels the weight of all of this surrounding him, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the last words he says are, it is finished. 
Because it's in that moment that he fulfills everything that needed to be fulfilled. The last and final sacrifice that would ever need to be made for the atonement of anyone's sins. Jesus' sacrifice. And he died. The darkest of all days. His body taken off of that cross. Originally planned probably just to throw into a pit with a bunch of other dead bodies. But one guy comes to him and said, can I take that body and place it in a tomb that I've bought? And he's allowed. So his body's laid in a dark tomb. The disciples hiding in dark rooms because they don't know what's next. They don't know what's going to happen until just a few days later. Mary Magdalene. Matthew tells us the other Mary as well. Go to visit the tomb of Jesus, two women, just to offer their love and just go spend some time by the tomb. They get there and they find no body. And they run back to the disciples and John tells us that Peter and John, they run, race back to the tomb where they get and they don't see Jesus. And then we begin to see through these written accounts of these eyewitnesses that Jesus begins to appear back to them. And everything that he taught now becomes a reality. And everything he taught now becomes even more powerful. Because a resurrected Jesus made it all real. And he would tell them, go and spend some time in prayer and wait. And I'm going to send you just like I told you, my spirit to be with you, to empower you, to continue to tell the good news of what I've given you. And not only that, to empower you to love others the way that I've loved you. And that's exactly what they do. And they begin to minister. And Luke tells us that even some of those Pharisees who wanted Jesus dead, he tells us in his book, you can find it in Acts chapter 6, that some of them even became followers of Jesus. One of the most famous Pharisees that became a follower of Jesus is a guy named Paul. We know him as Paul. He was called Saul before he met Jesus. And in Acts chapter 9, Luke writes and he tells this story of how Paul's life was changed, probably because Paul told Luke, let me tell you what happened. And we see Paul, a guy whose mission was to hunt down every person continuing to proclaim a resurrected Jesus and kill them just like Jesus had been killed. Has his life changed and transformed and his mission changed. And he becomes one who proclaims a resurrected Jesus. And in his first letter to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He writes these words. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture. What is he saying? Just like the prophets told us was going to happen. Those guys we studied, those guys we memorized. The ones that we couldn't get those words in our head when Jesus was standing right there face to face with us. But now, because we've seen him alive after he was brutally killed, how? 
only because he's God. The prophets were real. And he goes on and he says, he was seen by Peter. And then he was seen by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, although we've lost some of them, he says. But guys, we know this because it wasn't just happenstance. He appeared to many, many people. And so now, what's our response to it? James, I told you he was one of the early leaders as the church was trying to figure all this out because now the gospel is going beyond just the Israelites, beyond the Jewish nation. It's spreading to those they call Gentiles, those they call barbarians, those they call dogs. It's spreading to them and their lives are being changed. They're experiencing the love of Jesus. James steps up in a meeting one day. It's called the Jerusalem Council. He steps up in this meeting and Luke writes the words of James. We see it in Acts chapter 15. And he says this, it's my judgment, James says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't put anything on them. Let them come to Jesus and have their lives changed. That's the whole reason he came. And then in his letter, he would write these words in James chapter two. Someone may argue, some, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. In other words, just like Jesus said, I got to love others in the same way he's loved me. And people will know I'm his disciple by how I love them. So I prove my faith through what I do. I prove my faith in how I respond. So if we were to be so bold today to ask in the same way that those crowds ask John, what do we do? In the same way that people would come to Jesus and ask him, what should I do? In the same way that listeners asked Peter on that day of Pentecost, what do we do? If we were to be so bold and ask that question, what must I do? How do I respond to this? The answer is the same, just as it was then. Repent. Admit your faults. And let God, through the love of his son, Jesus, transform life. But then don't just stop there. Every day you wake up, ask the question, what must I do? What must I do today to love others in the same way that Christ has loved me? Because as followers of Christ, if we proclaim to be that, our life is expressing something. Hope is, is expressing a love, a love that Christ showed us. Ever since Jesus entered the world, people have been responding to his presence. The Magi responded when they traveled and they fell down on their knees and they worshiped him. The shepherds responded by coming to the scene of his birth. The religious leaders, they responded. Crowds responded to his teachings. The disciples responded by following him. All the way up to his death when two thieves on a cross, as we said, were responding to him in one way or another. And it didn't stop there. 
after his resurrection, people have been responding to Jesus for thousands of years. But the question today is how have you responded? And what will your response be? Because that's the only one you can worry about. Personally. We can worry about our loved ones. I should say it this way. That's the only one you can control. Is your response. And how you respond. So stand with me this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and for this moment. Thank you for your presence. And we believe, God, that your spirit is still with us, even today. You gave him to be with us, to help us in this life. And Father, I just ask that your spirit would just begin to move in someone's heart today that may need you. there's someone today that needs to turn their life over to you, God, I pray that you would let them take that step today and do that. Even if at some point in their life, they may have walked away. We we saw through these historical accounts that Peter even denied Jesus three times. In the same way that Judas portrayed him, Peter denied him. Judas, in his guilt, in his shame, made a horrible decision to take his life and not give you the opportunity to redeem him. But Peter, through grace and mercy, had the opportunity to have a conversation with Jesus and be welcomed right back into the arms of Jesus, even after denying him. God, I believe the same can take place in this room today. Whether it's someone for the first time or someone coming back to you, God, you can move in their heart and their life. I'll say to you today, ladies and gentlemen, that it's as easy as just saying to Jesus, I believe what you did was true. I believe that what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote about is just what Luke said. It's the truth. And today I want to receive it as that. And I want Jesus to begin to help me change my life. Forgive me and help me be new in you. So I'm just going to pause for a moment and give you the room to say your own prayer, if that's you today, to give your heart to Christ. Jesus. Father, I pray that as we are followers of Christ, we choose every day to respond to what you did for us by looking every day of how we can love others the same way that you loved us. And Father, I know that I am imperfect and I don't always do that the way that I should. So God, forgive me and help me to love others the way that you've taught us to love and the way that you loved us. And we thank you for that today in Jesus' name. I want to encourage you, if you said a prayer today, maybe for the first time or you're coming back to Jesus, don't do that just on your own and not tell someone. Tell somebody. In fact, you can text the word hope to that number on your screen and we'll journey with you. Next week, 
We're going to be doing baptisms right here. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to to let us know and we will walk you through that. We will love to have you be baptized next Sunday right here. It's going to be a great day of celebrating what God has done in our life. We pray you have a great week. God bless you. Go be Catalyst for Transformation and Happy Easter. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.